Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. So today I installed my air conditioner in my window. It's the first day that was really hot mm. that I felt like I needed to do that. Yeah, I still have not done that. My air conditioner's on standby, like it's sitting on the little windowsill, but for the time being, I'm just having my window open for the needed ventilation, but I, I'm not quite there at installing air conditioner weather for my own needs. I'm My body runs cold, so, or does run warm. I, I don't know what the right thing is. I, I'm not even thinking straight. I just got my second COVID shot a little bit ago. Yeah. I'm so, never like, thinking straight. <laughs> no. Yep. We just started the episode, bro. I know. Uh, okay, I got to get my mind right cuz we got a we got a lot to talk about today. We are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 58 and 59. Um lot to discuss with these particular sections. Uh, if it's okay with you, Derek, I'd like to go into the just a little bit of background, at least for Section 58, so people know where we're going to be coming from. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in our last Come Follow Me lesson, the Lord gives us the exciting news that Zion is going to be in Missouri. And, uh, and then we get some direction for the saints to start moving in that direction. Since starting the Doctrine and Covenants, we've moved uh, quite a bit already. And there were significant events that came with each move, motivated usually by a trial, like uh, the restoration of the priesthood with one move, the translation of the Book of Mormon with another move. Then we got the initial gathering of the saints to Ohio. And now we're getting the building of Zion with with this move. So, uh, yeah, the saints get to independence, though, and they see that they got quite a road ahead of them. The town that was, like there's nothing impressive about this place at all that they are. They had a few converts and they said of the town that it was, quote, nearly a century behind the times, close quote. And uh, that's not all that encouraging when you discover this is the place where Zion is supposed to be. It's the equivalent of being told to go to uh, Gary, Indiana and build Zion or Fitchburg, Massachusetts, build Zion. No shade if y'all live in Fitchburg. I just, uh-huh. I didn't like Fitchburg. But anyway, there's a lot going on here. And uh, Bishop Partridge is understandably feeling overwhelmed by the task of turning this place into a thriving community of believers. So what fi- what Section 58 is anyway, is the instruction given to the elders who are assembled in independence and uh, basically told what their next steps are, what they got to do now that they are in uh, Zion, in Jackson County, Missouri. So uh, with that, I think that is a good way to dive into these first couple of verses in uh, 58. Is it uh, cool if I uh, begin with a reading of verses 2 through 4 about, Derek? Yeah, that's good. So again, this is the voice of the Lord. He's speaking to uh, the elders who are assembled in Jackson County, in Zion. This is what the Lord says, starting in verse 2. Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death, and he that is Faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. 
Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. So I see a couple of things in these verses. That was two through five. One is that it's almost like the Lord seems to be tempering people's expectations about Zion. Like even though they see the town they're in and they already know, hey, this is different than what I had initially thought Zion would be. Like they they know, I feel like that, uh, you know, they should have different expectations, I feel like, as Mm -hmm. a result of them being there. But the other thing that stands out to me is the repetition. Like that's a bit worrisome because the church is less than two years old. The leadership and the elders are young. Most of the converts or most of the people that are assembled here are converts of less than a year. And they've been driven from places before already. Like a lot of what the church knows is tribulation. Yet the Lord feels to mention three times that there will be tribulation. Now, given what the church's existence has been like in its short existence, I feel like tribulation would be a given, but clearly this is about to be something different. And this is Missouri, after all. If you know about the Mormon church in Missouri, you already know that this is a pretty dark chapter in the history of the saints. And another thing is that this design that they're building is many years, uh, as it says later in the in this section, many years and much tribulation away. It's a reality that they can't see or comprehend yet. Those words in verse 3, you cannot behold with your natural eyes the design of God and the glory. Like those, I imagine, would hit hard uh, for, for the saints, that they can't see. Uh, with their natural eyes, the glory that is Zion. And I imagine that anybody who is engaged in any kind of reconciliation and justice work, uh, that these words hit hard for them as well. I I think, for example, about the words of Martin Luther King Jr. in his last sermon, where he tells people, even as he is only about three years removed from the end of formalized Jim Crow, where he tells people that he's been to the mountaintop and seen the promised land. He saw Zion, as it were, even though his people were only a few years removed from Jim Crow. And even though racism is very much a reality that we're still dealing with half a century after his death, I think about a conversation that I got to have with my mother on some Utah radio talk show about a year ago. I think this was after... Uh, George Floyd's death, I remember walking into that interview, walking into that conversation, that roundtable discussion with other people, activists in Utah, my own mother. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being, I remember feeling so little hope, you know, just this was on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery. This, this was like Breonna Taylor would still happen. Elijah McClain would still happen. Dante Wright would still happen. And I just remember feeling like, you know, why do we even bother with this work? Why is this, how much work has to be done? Like, I just remember not feeling particularly motivated to do anything. Uh, I just felt a lack of hope. But then I heard my mother speak. And mind you, my mother, 
you know, she was one of the first children to be part of the integrated schools in South Carolina after Brown versus the Board of Education. She's seen a lot of this stuff. She's experienced the Jim Crow South. She has more reason even than I to feel a way about the progress that the nation has made, if you can call it that. And even still living in the midst of the racism today and just seeing that not much has changed from her upbringing to now. Yet I listen to her speak with so much hope and so much, uh, I don't know, like I heard my mother speak with a prophetic authority I haven't heard her speak with in a long time. Like she spoke kind of like Mormon spoke to his son Moroni and Moroni, like I think it was either Mormon or Moroni chapter nine, but basically saying that, hey, we got work to do and we don't get to mm -hmm. say that we don't get to do this work simply because it's hopeless or that it looks hopeless or that the people don't listen to us. We have a responsibility as the bearers of this particular knowledge to speak truth to power, even though things are hard right now. Like I listened to my mother speak with hope and I listened to her speak with power saying in essence that she has been to the mountaintop and that she has seen Zion. And, um, having seen that with not her natural eyes, but her spiritual eyes. And there's even a quote from Joseph Smith. I should have written this down, but I remember him saying to Edward, uh, seeing a quote that he gave to Edward Partridge that he wanted Edward Partridge to see Zion as he saw it. Because Edward Partridge was not about to, uh, he, w he was not hopeful. And this is uh, what a lot of racial justice and reconciliation uh, leaders do presently. They ask people to see what is possible. They ask people to see not with their natural eyes, but with their spiritual eyes, the society that is possible if they simply put their shoulder to the wheel. And uh, that's what is being asked of the Lord here. He says, no, you can't see it with your natural eyes now, but you will be able to see eventually the glory and the blessings after much tribulation. My first thoughts are to think about the controversy, even though it shouldn't be a controversy, about critical race theory. Mm. And it turns out that the other side has learned all of our buzzwords, right? They, they now condemn intersectionality and they condemn all these words and they're like, but they don't even know what they are. Mm -hmm. And I just think about how some of this tribulation actually comes from the hands of other people, other children of God. And it just is really frustrating to see how this all plays out. And then how people will use religion, which should be liberatory, yeah. liberatory for people, they use it to oppress and they use it to preserve their privilege and preserve their favored status within the status quo. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking, as you said that, I remember saying, you can keep your talk about racism, you can keep your talk about critical race theory, you can keep your talk about oppression, I have Jesus. And I'm just like, I don't think you know what this conversation is about. Mm. I don't think you know what Jesus was about. And like, I kind of laughed. It was trauma laughter, of course, but I kind of laughed at the irony, but also really lamented that people really do not get it. Like, they are using their religion as an excuse to not care about racism, or they're using Jesus as mm. a, using Jesus as an excuse to not care about institutional racism and to not do anything about it subsequently. And that's one thing you learn from New Testament studies is yes, sir. The, 
the difficulty of historical Jesus reconstruction because it's so easy, and this is true for people on all sides, to reconstruct the historical Jesus based on the evidence as a mirror image of yourself or what you want Jesus to be. And I, and I mm-hmm. suppose it gets back to like, what questions do you bring the, to the text? And so, yes, we all read the text with a bias, but are we going to read it with a bias towards love and inclusion and, inju- and towards justice? Or are we going to read with a bias of exclusion and hate and misunderstanding? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to the text with love as my bias and see, well, what mm-hmm. is loving and what's going to do the best for all of God's children? And let's, yeah. I want to go back to this verse three. And you hit upon this very well. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter. It's saying that we can't really predict exactly or even close to what things are going to be like. And I want yeah. to pair this text with DNC 130 verse 2 that says, And that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there. Only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. And when it says that our same sociality will be coupled with eternal glory, it's saying to me that all oppression will be eliminated. Because how could you have have glory if you have all this mess? That's not glory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the same sociality. If we're still going to be us, if we're still going to be have all the diversity of our society, but it's going to be coupled with the absence of all of these evils that are inconsistent with glory. Homophobia and transphobia will be gone. Mm -hmm. Ableism will be gone. Mm -hmm. Poverty will be gone. Mm -hmm. Whiteness will be eliminated. Mm -hmm. I don't think that whiteness can be redeemed. Oh. I think it will be gone. Mm. And by that, I don't mean white people will be gone, but I mean whiteness as a construct who has, whose only meaning has, let's see, whiteness is a construct that only has meaning within the context of racism. Yes, sir. And that's what will be gone, right? Right. And I know that many in the Latter-day Saint world, and this is true of of LGBT issues as well, people have this idea of, oh, we know exactly what it's going to look like. No, we don't. We do (laughs) not. We need to have more humility. They know that there's no place for queer families in the celestial kingdom. Like, how do you know that? Where's your source? Where's your text? Where's your evidence from the character of Jesus? They have like, they have nothing Right. They have no evidence at all other than their internal bias, which they got from the surrounding culture, not from any specific revelation that has infected the church from outside. But anyway, so I know that many in the Latter-day Saint world have a simple cartoon picture of the next world in their heads. They imagine families being together forever in nuclear families of a mom, dad, and little kids living in a household all together with this pretty, it's like the, the, what, you know what it is? Is they think the celestial kingdom will look like Instagram pictures. You've seen all those Instagram pictures of those cute families? I don't be following none of them, but I feel like- But you know what I'm talking about, right? I I think so. They have these, uh, of course they're white families. Right, and And they're carefully curated of like, making these nice little lunches for their kids. Yeah. Perfect pictures of everybody looking all happy. Yeah, they have like a- Yeah, it's they've they've got these families. They have these outdoor pictures with the sun behind them and all this light illuminating their hair. 
Yeah. And they've, you've got a mom, dad, and all these little kids. And they think that's what the celestial kingdom is going to look like. Right, right. However, a moment's reflection on our doctrine of sealing generations together makes this vision impossible. Like, those kids are going to grow up and have kids of their own, and they're going to have kids of their own, and everyone's going to be sealed to everyone else. Like, you can't all be together mm-hmm. in one little itty-bitty living space. <laughs> and people can't imagine same-gender sealing. That is resonating with this text very well. It says, you cannot behold with your natural eyes the design of mm. your God. Mm. People can't yes. imagine same-gender sealing. Say that. But it's conceptually no different than different gender sealing. Mm-hmm. But somehow there's this uncrossable gap that's in the way for them. Mm-hmm. And I think this text makes room for generous orthodoxy. Part of the problem is that straight folks in the church are presented with a covenant path and gay folks are presented with a covenant treadmill. (laughs) All right, say more about that. So on the covenant treadmill, nothing we do gets us anywhere. We do the same amount of walking as straight folks, but we are not allowed to go anywhere due to the structures in place around us. Like we're on this treadmill. Mm-hmm. We do. We expend the same amount of effort. We're just as faithful. We're just as kind. We're just as loving. We're just as dedicated to church. We're just as dedicated to Christ. And they get to move forward on the covenant path, and we are on this covenant treadmill. Mm. But I can testify in the name of Christ that one day this frustrating unfairness will be thrown off. Mm-hmm. Gays can't change, but the proclamation can. Yes, sir. And I love the discussions we had the last week and the week before, the past two weeks, about the proclamation. And -hmm. these discussions exemplified the best in option three, thinking. And if you want an outline of what I'm talking about, go to tinyurl.com slash crash theory. And crash theory is all one word. See, I made this little link so that now I can just have our listeners go find it. (laughs) <laughs> and you will get crash theory with option one, two, and three, which are the only three options in light of a crash. Mm-hmm. But almost everyone realizes that the proclamation doesn't work cleanly or easily or obviously for LGBT folks. That's right. a crash. Right. What do we do with that? Option one is we know the proclamation doesn't work for LGBTs, but we're stuck with it. Option two is we know the proclamation doesn't work for LGBTs so we can throw the whole thing out. And some people in option two throw out all of the gospel. Mm -hmm. But option three is brilliant. That's the one that is most Christ-like in my view and the most powerful. It says we know that the proclamation doesn't work right now for LGBTs, but we can adapt. We can reinterpret, we can rewrite, we can recontextualize the proclamation. But anyway, so this is all to summarize that we should have some humility in assuming if you are in a position of power exactly what it's going to look like. Assuming that everyone's going to be white or assuming that everyone's going to be straight or assuming that everyone's going to be non-disabled, right? Mm -hmm. All of these assumptions are assumptions that really don't have a foundation. I think there's going to be room for everyone to be their fullest selves in the next Mm. life. That is what life is about. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Right. And that that we were created for joy, that Adam fell that people might be and people are that we might have joy. Mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of where I go with all of this. Cool. We may be uh, wanting to discuss that uh, idea of an abundant life once we get to section 59 and talk about uh, Mm -hmm. the Sabbath. Um, For the time being, though, I want to go on to something else that I know we both wanted to talk about. And this is kind of where I got hung up during my study this week. So I may not have too much to say about uh, the remainder of section 58 or section 59 even, because uh, this language just really stood out to me. And I was like, let me let me think about this. some. Let me focus on this a little bit because. This is making me uncomfortable, and I don't know why. I think I just don't understand it. Let me just go ahead and read these verses real quick. I'm reading uh, verses 10 and 11 in section 58. So at this point, the Lord still speaking about uh, Zion and uh, what his plans are for it. So 10. First the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. And after that cometh the day of my power. Then shall the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the deaf come into come in unto the marriage of the Lamb, and partake of the supper of the Lord prepared for the great day to come. So, again, this threw me off a bit because you don't hear the Lord use language often. If it, like I can't recall any that seems to prioritize the privileged, but you know. I don't know if that's really what he's doing here upon further readings. He, he says in verse 9 that all of us are invited. All are invited. But then says in verse 10 that the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble will be first. Then the Lord's power will provide access to everyone else. So I had to ask the question, why are the rich and the learned first? And what exactly does that mean? So, like, are they first because they're called to be first or because the advantages of wealth and education and whatnot allow them to be first? Or even are they called because their wealth and education are necessary for to build the foundation of Zion? And I don't totally know the answer to that question, but I feel like we get some hints in the preceding verses. Mm -hmm. We're, We're told that the elders were sent to lay a foundation and bear record of Zion in verse 7. In verse 8, they're also sent that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. That's some language we saw in, that, that, that we see in Isaiah 25. Uh, Martin Harris is later told in this section to be an example in laying his money before the bishop of the church. In last week's lesson, the elders were told to create a school in Zion. And the next section reiterates the law of consecration, which leads me to believe that the reason the rich and the learned are called first is so that the Lord can use their advantages of wealth and education for the benefit of the poor and those without those benefits. This feast of fat things that is being prepared, this has both spiritual and temporal meanings. This is an, this is an abolition of both poverty and ignorance. That's what this feast of fat things is intended for. That is what these elders are sent to uh, make ready and lay a foundation for. Now, it could be that the day of the Lord's power includes a sharing of those privileges. I'm not entirely sure what that would look like. But what seems obvious to me is that if those with these advantages are going to be called to Zion first, then a big Mm -hmm. part of their work in laying the foundation for Zion is making sure that everyone else is able to have those advantages as well. I think about my own uh, advantages 
my own advantages in education, my own advantages as a straight cisgendered uh, male who is educated and is relatively mobile. Like, I feel like the Lord has called me because of these positions, because of my intersecting, intersect, intersecting identities, that I have a responsibility and a calling to kind of help prepare this table, to help prepare and lay this foundation for Zion, because my advantages make that possible for me. I know that there's a lot of people that occupy other identities that don't have the stamina to come to Zion and work for the building up of Zion just yet for various reasons. I mean, none of those are really any of my business, but what I do know is my only marginalized identity really is, you know, being a black person. And so long as I have these other uh, identities that give me advantages, I feel like I have a responsibility to use those to, in essence, prepare this feast of fat things that other people might be able to join us, that the poor may be able to come, that people of other marginalized identities might be able to come. So that's kind of where my head and my heart are sitting with regard to why the Lord has stated that the rich and the learned are coming first, why the first are actually the first this time. But uh, what, what, what feelings do you got? What did you, what did you think when you read this verse? Yeah, so I have two principles that that I want to I want to bring to the conversation. One yes, is sir. a very important that I've seen most in Protestant biblical interpretation. And this is the principle that says we should interpret the obscure passages of the scriptures in light of the clear ones rather than the other way around. So if you've got some type of contrast and there's this text you don't know what to do with and you're not sure how to interpret it and you're not it's really kind of baffling. But then you've got other scriptures that are very clear, very thorough, very consistent throughout the scriptures. You should use the ones that you know to interpret the ones that you aren't sure about rather than using this uncertainty to goof up everything else that you already know. Mm -hmm. And I think this is so true. Like we have this puzzling text here that says the rich and the learned are first. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of weird, but we have all these clear scriptures everywhere else that talks about how God has a preferential option for those who are dispossessed, that God is going to take everything and reverse the fortunes, that the first will be last and the last will be first, that God always takes the side of those who are marginalized and disempowered. Like, these are clear texts, and so we should, instead of using this one text to say, oh, well, well, the rich are first, right? That's we should figure out and and use these other texts to to norm our understanding of this verse. And this gets back to mm -hmm. the crater acronym that I had before. Ah, uh, yes, and crater. the one of the the last R has to do with uh, rebuttal. If there's any sort of rebuttal or response elsewhere in the scripture, you got to know about that if you're going to interpret this scripture correctly. And the second text I want, or the second principle I want to remind people of is this, is that our ecclesiology should flow from our Christology. And these are big words. Okay. The ecclesiology is our doctrine of the church. Like, what is the church? How is it constituted? What does it look like? What does it do? And our Christology is our doctrine of Christ. Like, what is, who is Jesus? What is the Messiah like? What is, what is his role? What is his offices? What does he do? And what is it, are his natures? Things like that. So our ecclesiology should flow from our Christology. And why? Because the church is the body of Christ. 
and a functioning body is interdependent and it's harmonious even though not all members of the body have the same function and you see this here in Missouri not everyone's gonna come to the table with the same privileges not everyone is gonna come to this table with the same needs but if we function together as a body if we embody Christ and the way he did his ministry a lot of that will become clear and I think kind of like what you did the uh, this, this one line out of context will be will sound kind of awkward right like mm-hmm. the rich will, and the first the rich and the learned, right? But I think this must be taken in light of the fact that, and you quoted these, is that all of six through nine are one sentence. So you can't just take that. You have to take six that says, Behold, verily I say unto you, for this cause I have sent you, mm-hmm. uh, that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come. And then in verse seven, that you might be honored in laying the foundation. Mm-hmm. and eight, that a feast might be prepared for the f- poor. And then it, then we get to nine, it's still all one se- sentence, and then it says, yea, a supper of the house of the Lord well prepared, unto which all nations shall be invited. And then we get the declaration, first the rich and the learned. So what are they first in? I think it's first in laying the foundation, first mm-hmm. in being called to uh, this calling, first to be preparing the feast of the fat things. So what I'm saying is, when we look at the clause that you might be honored in laying the foundation, it reminds us of the tremendous work of communitarian living and the law of consecration that's elsewhere all in the surrounding context. So I think that when it says the rich and the learned are first, it means that they should be the first to contribute and the first to do the heavy lifting and the first Uh. to divest themselves of their advantage. And Uh. they will set up the well-prepared feast for the poor. I'm also like curious that. about how ableism impacts our understanding of these verses. And we have a number of disabilities listed by name here. But this text ends up being inclusive of disability. Mm-hmm. And it's neutral as to whether these disabilities will be, quote, fixed or not. However, um, this text has access for all. And this reminds me a lot of the parable of the banquet in Luke chapter 14. Go and read it. I'm not going to talk about it here, but there's a similar <laughs> thing where It is cross-referenced here. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. It's uh, a similar parable where someone hosts a banquet and then invites all the the A-list people and they don't show up and 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 they're like, well, if you're not going to show up, then I'm going to throw it open to everybody. And I think that's what the gospel is like. People with privilege may not even ha- understand the riches that they have. They may not understand or even feel the need for the gospel. They might think they're all set and it's the people who mm-hmm. don't have access who have an understanding of their need and dependence and are going to appreciate the gospel and are going to have a living, living and vibrant faith Mm. but what i'm really curious about is who gets to define disability and who gets to construct the concept of disability and there's some interesting clues in the gospels about jesus and family rejection and what appears to be mental illness the way it's narrated so john 7 verse 5 says of jesus that not even his own brothers believed in him imagine that like you were born of a virgin you had the wise men come you had all these things and then your brothers don't even believe you Hmm. 
And in Mark 3.21, his family went out to restrain him, for they said that he is out of his mind. Hmm. I mean, imagine being rejected by your own, well, you know, queer people don't have to imagine. Many of mm-hmm. us are rejected. And I think mm-hmm. um, similar, similarly with disabled folks, there's a lot of people, see disability, unlike ethnicity, is, is not a- always shared by the family unit. I mean, well, with ethnicity, it's not always shared by the family unit either. But, but there's a sense in which many, many disabled folks are born into abled families that have no idea what to do with them and no idea mm-hmm. how, to, how to take care of them and no idea how to support them. Mm-hmm. That is very different, I think, than the average uh, family that's oppressed as a whole and they understand mm-hmm. each other and they get each other. Mm-hmm. Now, I have no idea whether Jesus had a mental illness or not. That's not something that I can decide here. But what is clear in the text is that people around him felt that they had the power to diagnose him. Mm-hmm. I think that something about Jesus' thinking and speaking was so different that they had to label it. They refused to accommodate him because of it. And I'm thinking about how our neurodivergent friends' lives are often made more difficult by their own families and their friends. Mm -hmm. So back to our DNC text and inclusion, I have no doubt that given what we know about Christ and how Christ takes the side of the dispossessed and he experienced dispossession himself, Mm -hmm. that when we take all this context together, that the priority of the rich and learned in this text is a priority of labor and responsibility and not a priority of blessing or reward. And we will see later on about how people with privilege need to lead out in divesting that privilege. Indeed. Uh, Let's actually, if you don't have any more to say about that, let's go ahead and move on to uh, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 58 still. And uh, let's go ahead and read these verses, 26 through uh, about 29. That's what I got here. Right. So um, these will play right nicely into that. For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things, for he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no award. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves, and inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. 29. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth a commandment with doubtful heart, and keepeth it with softness, the same is damned. So, I like the placement of these verses because they set us up for section 59 that reads the law of consecration as a natural consequence of the great commandments. Being anxiously engaged in a good cause is another consequence, I feel. My mind immediately went to the various causes and organizations for justice and reconciliation work that exist and how seeking these causes out and learning how to live in these, live into these great commandments is part of the human experience and part of obtaining godhood, which is why I feel the Lord says we're damned when we wait to be commanded in all things. Waiting to be commanded in all things, waiting for permission to do the right things or best things, is a sure way to spend much of your life standing still. And especially now, the saints can't really afford to stand still. We're supposed to be leaders in showing the rest of the world how people ought to treat each other. And we unfortunately have 
a dominant culture that doesn't feel comfortable doing anything until the prophet says so or will speak ill of anything that makes them feel uncomfortable because the prophet hasn't counseled us to do that particular thing. But uh, what were your initial thoughts as you uh, read through uh, these verses in this context? You know, people say that somehow bottom-up revelation doesn't happen and that it's wrong to do try to do anything bottom up in the church first of all we shouldn't see ourselves on the bottom like there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which we all have a calling we all have a role but this isn't about dominion over right we see this in dnc 121 that you can't use the priesthood to say well you have to do it just because i said so that is not the way of christ and anyone who does that has lost their credibility and authority so so we're 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 a team we're not supposed to uh, see ourselves in a way that I don't even like seeing our, seeing us on the bottom. So when people talk about bottom up revelation, they've already prejudged the question, right? I think there's revelation to the community, and you can call that bottom up revelation. But the point is that we're all given a measure of the Spirit. We're all walking by the light of the spirit we all have Christ we all have this and so it's totally fair game to say hey look we're going to take some initiative here and when you look at it almost everything that we've had in the church is bottom up that someone came to the prophet and and the people prompt the prophets like i said have uh, uh, said numerous times and we see this throughout dnc that some actual right. concrete situation arises and emerges and then it's brought to the the leaders mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you've said kind of mostly of a lot of the things that i would say but but it's very important to always discuss initiative responsibility and maturity as gospel values we talk a lot about mm-hmm. exact obedience but where's our talk about maturity Where's our talk about a spirit-filled life that has initiative and responsibility? I love the text in John 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you know, the the spirit blows where it wishes. Uh, And that's how it is with those who have been, and you can't predict where where it's going or where where it came from, but that's what it's like for those who are born of the spirit. And the, the fact is the Lord's will for us is not completely revealed. There are things Mm -hmm. that we need to do of our own accord and led by the Spirit. And this reminds me of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And I I use this as a a critique of those people who are content with the revelations that we currently have. Like, they take what we've received from the Lord and do what that one servant did and bury it and say, we don't need any more. We're just going to keep it the way it is. And that's mm-hmm. the attitude of a lot of people in the church. Like, revelation, we have a revelation, we have a proclamation, we don't need any more. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, why not? And the reason you don't think we need any more is because your life isn't affected by the absence right. of completeness on some of these issues. Right. You're good. What about the rest of us? Yeah. So so the um, I love that understanding of the parable of the talents is that we have to take the truths. And I think the secret to understanding the parable of the talents is that the um, the dude left. He left his servants in charge, and he just left. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. he didn't micromanage it. He's left, right. and it was on them to figure out what to do with it. And so there's a sense in which God has given us some truths, 
and left at least on on certain dimensions and is expecting us to figure out what we're going to do with them if we put these mm-hmm. truths together to make more truths we will mm-hmm. get towards the inclusion and equality of all peoples but there's work that we have to do we have to put these talents together to make more right and I love what uh, President Nelson said in that we have to lead out in eliminating ra- racism. Right. And we, right. M- as the people, must take some initiative and not wait for our leaders to spoon feed us everything. Right. What are your reactions into um, getting pushback for leading out on issues of racism? What? I, I don't pay those very much attention as oftentimes I do my homework and I'm pretty secure in my ability to cogently articulate that Christians should care about racism, why we should and why why we need to address it urgently. Most of the people that push back aren't telling me I'm wrong even, just stuff about my my tone or the appropriateness of the message for the time that we're in or they try to redirect me to talking about the general message of love rather than the specific one of anti-racism, which, by the way, I would gladly do if people could get the message that loving everybody means not being racist. And the the ones that um, actually tell me I'm wrong form very bad arguments if they try to form any at all, and they are of no account anyway. I, I tend to shake the dust from my feet from before those folks. I saw on Ali Henny's Facebook page today some white dude trying to insult her intelligence simply by saying she sounded uneducated. He didn't point to anything in particular. He didn't compose a counter-argument. He just said she sounded uneducated. And that's about the quality of disagreement that I would expect from a dude named Dallas with a Trump profile picture overlay. Like, it is what it is. I don't think... I, I don't think I've received... Any valid critiques of my work in the last couple of years? It's usually people who don't know CRT, they don't know definitions, they don't know history or the scriptures that well at all. These are people who have not done enough work and they make no sense. Now, that's not to say that I don't understand them. I very much do. These are folks who are afraid of change, who feel threatened when their views of the world are challenged who are looking for an excuse to not care so they can feel good about who they are and their apathy or ignorance. That's, that's the kind of per that's the kind of people we're dealing with. Those aren't people I'm interested in, nor are they people who have opinions that I care about. So to answer your question, I basically don't react wherever I can help it in the moments that I'm put on the spot. And I have to like in some unmediated Q and a sessions, I usually redirect by asking questions, usually ones like, Is my tone a bigger problem than the racism? Or have the brethren teaching us to love one another been sufficient to address racism? That's that's how I'd respond to it. That's how I typically respond to pushback. Yeah, I want to just say something about tone. And hopefully this analogy will silence all these tone policing people forever. Like, I hate to, to build up this anticipation, but let's talk about the body again, okay? This analogy of the body. I love this analogy. Like, I didn't come up with it. It's right there in Paul, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, and this happened to me the other day. I um, was cooking, and I didn't realize how hot something was, Mm -hmm. and I touched it. And my finger decided to scream at me, and it sent a very 
very urgent and impassioned message through my nerves to my brain that said, this is pain. And guess what I did? I um, almost automatically, without even having to decide, uh, stopped touching the thing that was hot. And if that message, and I actually wasn't injured. I was able to get my finger off the hot thing before actually getting any injury. Now, what would happen if that message from my finger to my brain was not persistent enough and not uh, attention getting enough? What would happen is I would actually have burnt my finger. If I couldn't feel pain, like my finger would sizzle and burn and be destroyed, Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't even know. Pain tells us there's something that's wrong. Urgency of tone tells us there's something wrong. And when my brain got that message from my finger, yeah, it hurt. It was not fun to he- it was not fun to feel that pain. But my brain was so thankful to get that message because if it did not get that message with that tone, I would have not have quickly enough taken my finger off the hot thing. Good and so whenever people talk about, oh, your tone, like that's the tone that needs to happen to mm-hmm. get the finger off the hot thing, mm-hmm. right? And if we're all one body, we're going to be thankful that our body is coordinated enough to send these messages and to do something about it because mm-hmm. uh, that's how it works. Like if my brain and my finger are not coordinated, um, it's my brain that controls the muscles to move my finger, right? Mm-hmm. Although I think that there's some reflexes that don't actually go to the brain. They go they go to the um, the spinal cord and the spinal cord actually makes that decision uh, quick, more quickly than the brain can. But anyway, my point is, yeah, I don't wanna hear this tone argument anymore. Like that's mm-hmm. the tone that is authentic to the situation. And mm-hmm. when you have expressions of pain, there's a reason why it's that level of uh, urgency. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't work if it weren't that level. And that's what you gotta concern yourself with rather than the tone. Like, ask yourself why that was necessary in the first place mm-hmm. in order for you to get that message. This is actually something that uh, Anthony Mackie's character says in um, in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier during, like, his, like, crowning speech in the final episode. But, like, right when he becomes Captain America. That's just for my Falcon and Winter Soldier fans. But I just thought it was interesting how what you said is very similar to what he said in his uh, grand speech mm-hmm. in the end. And what would happen if my brain said to my finger... Could you gently remove that from the hot stove? Well, what if... Yeah, what if my what if my brain said to my finger, I don't like your tone. I'm going to keep you on the hot oh, thing until, yeah. you, <laughs> until, you, until you say it nicely. Like, yeah, that's yeah. not right. No, and you're doing more damage. My, like, brain, it, my brain was actually thank, thankful for that urgent message because that's what worked. Right, mm-hmm. I'm just so thankful that I got that urgent message before I damaged my finger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, black folks have been saying for 400 years the urgency of the situation, and those with the power to do something about it have said the same thing for the for the past 400 years. Let's go on to DNC 59 then. 
Okay, 59. Where do you want to go first, Brother Derek? Yeah, I want to start with talking about the Sabbath. And I'm not going to read all of these verses, but take a double, a close look at 9 through 14. That would benefit from a close reading. And I'll just kind of summarize what's happening here. And so the Lord commands us to go up to the house of prayer and offer our sacraments. And that this, the Sabbath day, is a day appointed to rest from our labors. And we should offer up vows and we should offer up oblations, which means something that uh, that's offered, a sacrifice. And then it says that on this day we should do nothing other, no other thing, uh, and only let our food be prepared with singleness of heart, that our fasting might be perfect. And then this is a day of fasting and prayer, or in other words, rejoicing in prayer. And I just think it's so interesting this this language of sacrifice. First of all, let's talk about this because we don't literally sacrifice animals uh, anymore, mm-hmm. and this is a central piece of the religious technology of Judaism when when the temple existed. And it wasn't just animal sacrifices; there were other sacrifices as well, grain offerings, and so forth. But we don't do that. And I think this is very much option three thinking that sacrifice gets redefined. And this reminds me about what Paul says in Romans 12, one to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that is a really interesting mixed metaphor because a sacrifice by definition is dead. It's a dead thing that's put on the altar. Mm. But Paul asks us to be a living sacrifice, a living dead thing, a living dead thing. (laughs) And this also breaks some of our binaries and it queers our understanding of what life and death even is. And I think this you can see in the resurrection. You can see this in um, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, especially in Galatians 6, where it says, that I've been crucified to the world, right? So the the part of us, part of us has died to the world, but then part of us lives because of Christ. And I want to talk about this sacrifice because um, Sabbath, like resting from our labors, can be seen as a sacrifice, but it also can be seen as a break from the exploitation and dominance of the natural world. Because if you look at all the stuff that's prohibited on Shabbat, at least within uh, observant Judaism, there are 39 categories of prohibited labors. And all of them, in some way or another, seem to be connected to dominance over the world. For example, we can't build a fire. We can't uh, construct a building. We can't do agriculture. We can't do all these other things that are laboring over and a dominance of the natural world. We must rest from all those things. Hmm. Uh, and I just want to say something a little bit about the laws of Shabbat and how Judaism ends up out of context looking legalistic. There are lots and lots of layers upon layers of of Jewish laws around Shabbat. And some of these have been added by the rabbis in order to make sure that you don't get yourself into a position where you would violate Shabbat biblically. Uh, 
And the and the reason why this to me is very logical because so much of what we do on a daily basis is a product of habit. Like if I have a pencil in my hand, I might just, you know, start doodling with it, just not knowing what day it is. And that is something that is completely permissible six days of the week, but writing is not pro- permissible on the seventh day. So the rabbis put in all these other things and places so you never actually get to the point where you out of habit do something that is is normal every other day of the week, but now on this day you have to have something in place to make sure that you don't accidentally do it. And part of this is that violating Shabbat theoretically according to the Torah is a capital crime. It is worthy hmm. of death. I mean, this is something serious. Now they didn't actually implement it that way in rabbinic Judaism, but imagine for a half a second that adultery was legal one day a week. That, it, that adultery was permitted one day a week. Well, yeah, okay, if that's the case, you had better have something in place to make sure you know what day it is and don't accidentally <laughs> get your days mixed up and do something on the wrong day. That is the level of at which they took the commandments so seriously that they built a fence around it so you don't get even close enough. And to me, that that's reasonable. That's not like legalistic. It's not hypocritical. It's not fundamentalistic. It's actually making meaning and joy out of a commandment. And I wanted to connect, well, what is, where does the text go with this? If you look at where it talks about um, the Sabbath, and then it says in verse 16 after that, it says, Verily I say that inasmuch as ye do this, the fullness of the earth is yours. So in, in a certain way, a responsibility towards the Sabbath leads God to give us responsibility over the environment. And I think one of those responsibilities is the protection of the environment. And I love how it, uh, in verses 18 through 20, God gives us all of these things, the blessings of the use of the, of the environment for food and for clothing and for strengthening and enlivening us. And then in verse 20 it says, And it pleaseth God that he hath given all these things unto man, for unto this end were they made to be used with judgment, Mm -hmm. not to excess, Mm -hmm. neither by extortion. Mm -hmm. So we can't have the one without the other. We can't have dominion over the natural world without having these checks and balances that it needs to be done with wise judgment, it needs to be done not to excess, and not by extortion, meaning compelling or forcing something or controlling something. So that is the other half that we need to balance. And I think that environmental justice is something that we have not spoken about enough in the church. And I probably Mm -hmm. haven't spoken about it enough myself, but there's so much intersectionality around the natural world and how that connects with racism and access to resources and who gets to control the resources and what do we do in terms of justice for our indigenous people and what do we do Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, poverty and what do we do in terms of um, polluting the world where it's going to be the poor people who bear the cost for the rich people's excess, right? There's just a lot of stuff where the environment is not just a an issue for like, oh, I want to be able to go and see pretty plants and animals that aren't extinct. It's an issue around justice and harmony for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah man. Um, 
wish we could i mean there's a lot here just in these two sections i always worry when there's like one or two sections are we going to be able to fill a whole episode with it but there was there's <laughs> like a lot that. in here anyway let's go ahead and wrap this up real quick before we do want to let y'all know that dialogue a journal of mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features the first is dialogue heritage which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. And you can also find us on Facebook. And you can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yes. And if you guys also want to uh, contribute to the work that we're doing on this side, uh, you can go to glow.fm slash beyondtheblock. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyondtheblock. Uh, anybody who contributes in any way to the work that we're doing over here, whether that's uh, monetarily or even just sharing our content, you can join our uh, Facebook collaborator community where we are going to be having more discussions. Uh, you guys can... Uh, Discuss some things with us more directly. Give us ideas. Give us feedback on ideas that we got for the show or things that we've said on the show. Like this this work is definitely best done in community. Derek and I certainly can't do this on our own. So if y'all got things that y'all want to bring to us, don't hesitate to do that. Uh, we're always listening. We're definitely very much available in that community. So, um, yeah. Or if you just want to be part of this growing community that we're trying to create of uh, believers who are really trying to preach justice and reconciliation in the name of Christ and help in any way we can to bring that about, definitely join that community. We'd be more than happy to have y'all. Thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week. We'll see you next week. Bye.